We are continuing in our Gospel According to Job series, the good news according to Job, that in spite of the most awful things that would happen to a person or that actually did happen to a person, we find that God is very much present, that he is still in control, and that he is deeply attentive. And even though we may feel God is distant and silent in our sufferings, uh, Job reminds us that God is very close and will ultimately speak, that he is still good when everything seems hopeless, and he will ultimately redeem the suffering of his people. Job reminds us that even though we often don't know why bad things happen to good people, uh, and as Jesus said, there really is no one good except God alone, but God is still good, and he loves sinners, and he will ultimately make things right. Uh, that is what the chapter that we're about to look at, chapter 19, will remind us of. But last week, Pastor Stan revealed in chapter 20, 32 of Job uh, the nature that part of the goodness of God is that he provides justice. He provides a justifier uh, that we have a God who provides a perfect mediator, a perfect peacemaker, a perfect savior, and that Job and all repenting sinners uh, will be justified and declared innocent. Uh, Stan reminded us that last week, and we're in a position looking back uh, to realize that a justifier has come, uh, that one who has run the race for us has already run that race. Uh, Justify, I understand, won the Triple Crown last night. Uh, we, in this part of our history, can look back at the cross and at what Jesus did and recognize that he has won the race. He has provided justice for us. And uh, we are living in that reality. But Job didn't have that, but he had a sense that this was the God that he worshipped. Chapters, uh, chapter 19 follows a whole bunch of speeches. There are 17 speeches that have preceded uh, what we're going to hear today. Uh, there were three speeches by Eliphaz, three by Bildad, and two by, by Zophar. And then Job uh, responded to each one of those. There's nine speeches by Job. But as you read those speeches, you do not find really much of a dialogue, uh, but you find different characters trying to make various points. But there is an overarching point that Job's three friends were trying to make. Job, you must have done something really horrible and awful to deserve what you're getting. Uh, one even said that his children must have done something awful to deserve what they got. Uh, then in chapter 18, we find Bildad spoke and declared Job to be a wicked person whose lamp had been snuffed out, whose roots had been dried up, uh, who had no offspring, and who was an object of horror. And he ends chapter uh, 18 in verse 21. He says, surely such is the dwelling of an evil man. Such is the place of one who knows not God. Now, what more could you want from good friends? A lot more than that. But this leads us to chapter 19, where Job continued to pour out his struggles 
as an abandoned and friendless man. But here in the midst of this dark agony, uh, we see a flash of assurance, a flash of hope, an amazing statement about the grace of the God that Job worshipped. Let's look at chapter 19, starting with verse 1. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped me from my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone, and my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They cast up their siege ramp against me and a camp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they would be inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. This is the word of the Lord. First, I want to thank uh, many of you for praying for Maria and our family during this time where uh, his, her brother Paul uh, has been ill and then uh, a few week, couple weeks ago he died and uh, we had a memorial service that I officiated in Florida uh, last weekend. Uh, Paul uh, and Maria, this, uh, had, uh, or Paul's wife, had given birth the same day uh, to our firstborn children on Father's Day uh, about 37 years ago. Uh, Paul was Maria's oldest brother, uh, beloved brother, and he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer about four months ago. Uh, and he fought until the end. Uh, he left his wife, he left his two children and two grandchildren. And when we visited Paul in the hospital, 
just uh, about six weeks ago when he was struggling, we took uh, Maria's mom uh, to visit her son for the last time. And I remember uh, going to meet with Paul, and while we were in the hospital, I was rather distracted by the screaming and the crying of the patient in the next room. And Paul informed us that it was a young lady who, in an operation that had gone wrong, was left paralyzed from the neck down. And I was just somewhat uh, very moved by just hearing this, and I was like, felt an urge just to go and sit with her, but I had to stay in the room of suffering that I was presently in. Uh, Maria's mom uh, had also been diagnosed with stage four lung cancer around the same time, although she has presently not experienced the symptoms yet. And then uh, uh, that, after we left, uh, the man who drove us in the cart uh, to the car uh, just share with us, he had retired from New York as an accountant and he moved to Florida and he was just serving to volunteer and he mentioned that he had been married three times, uh, all failed marriages and he was living by himself, just out of the blue, just sharing that. We had dinner that night at Panera Bread and, and uh, as we went there and we were trying to, uh, we were talking to Maria's mom who uh, is deaf, um, a woman next in the next table over uh, somehow captured some of our struggle and uh, we there was a conversation that Maria entered into for a while and Maria shared that this woman uh, who was working on a computer uh, had lost her mom in the last year uh, her son had committed suicide uh, and then in the face of the depression of those losses uh, she was an engineer uh, she could no longer work, and she was out of work, and then in the process of just, you know, seeking comfort, she had gained like 100 pounds, and so she was a woman that was in extreme distress. Uh, and I just remember thinking about what I just experienced, probably in about six hours of just getting to know the suffering of people around me, and I said, gee, that's a lot of suffering. That's a lot of intense pain. And uh, it reminded me of what uh, the verse that Kevin had shared with us in our worship service from Ecclesiastes 7, that it is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. Uh, and that somehow there's supposed to be beauty in our brokenness, but it's often very hard to to find that beauty, and we often tend to run from suffering and to run uh, from, from that kind of trials uh, or to seek to make sense. A couple weeks ago, uh, we remember the horrible floods that hit uh, Ellicott City uh, two times in two years, and it destroyed uh, so much of that city, a historic city, but uh, a short place, a short distance from that, uh, a friend of ours, uh, actually was a, an elder or a borrowed elder from this church and when we first started, Dan Broadwater, uh, who was the pastor of Relay Church, uh, Grace Relay in Relay, Maryland. He and his wife uh, lived in a house and the storm drain, uh, there was 10 inches of rain that came very quickly and the storm drains got stopped up and the water was rushing down the street, rushing over their yard, through their garage, into their basement, 
filled up the basement with about four foot of water and then just blew out the back of the, uh, the house and it was condemned. And uh, the reporter mentioned in talking to Kay Brawlwater, Dan's wife, between having lost so much from the flood and from some recent family emergencies, including the recent death of a relative, Kay Brawlwater said she was beginning to feel, feel a bit like living out the biblical story of Job <laughs> as a test of faith. I remember many years ago, there was a, a brother in our fellowship who had been struggling with a uh, very uh, painful toothache, and he was, was trying to get HMO help, uh, and it sounded like a nightmare in, in the process, but even worse, this is the guy's name was Dexter, Dexter Jenkins. Someone stole personal checks of his and uh, forged his name and emptied out his bank account. And Job was, uh, or Dexter was referring that he felt like Job that particular week. Now, how do you begin to make sense out of such suffering or intense agony that maybe we go through or that people go through in particular seasons of their lives? Uh, Dexter said this. He says, in the midst of his trial, I'm willing to learn the lesson as long as it is clear. As long as he understands what is happening. Uh, but as we know from Job, and as we find in this passage, God doesn't always tell us why we go through what we go through. Uh, Job's questions of what had happened and why it happened are never answered in the book of Job. Uh, and maybe you're here today, and you've been going through stuff, and it's been hard, and you don't know why you're going through what you're going through. Maybe you're feeling like Job, and maybe you're wondering when, when Job's trials are going to hit you. <laughs> so what do you do when you are faced with severe pain or intense, continual suffering? There's really only two options. Either you pull away from God or you pursue God. Uh, either you leave God or you cleave to God. And either you become a bitter person or the suffering drives you into a deeper experience of faith. And Job shows us how to pursue God, to cleave to God in the midst of intense pain, suffering, and agony that we might know is grace. Job shows us how to fight the fight of faith in our miseries. The pursuit of God in our misery and pain. Unfortunately, we don't have time to look at the comparisons in any real detail between Job's responses and his friends. But if you were to read through the book of Job, you would pick up a very clear difference between how his friends describe suffering and Job's condition and how Job responds. Job's friends talk about God. Job talks to God. Job's friends are rather cold in their descriptions, and Job is very passionate. For instance, when Bildad speaks about the fate of the wicked, uh, his description is really academic. It is really head talk and no heart. He does not think about how to express the awfulness of what it's like to be under the curse of God. There is no sympathy. He does not think about where the heart of God is in it all. It is like he is spouting off a formula. Uh, here is 
uh, portion of Bildad's speech in chapter 18. The lamp of the wicked is snuffed out. The flame of his fire stops burning. The light in his tent becomes dark. The lamp besides him goes out. The vigor of his step is weak, and his own schemes throw him down. His feet thrust him into a net, and he wanders into a mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare holds him fast. It's a rather mechanical description. One talking like about the laws of gravity. But Job's point of view and how Job communicates it is very different. He does not see God dealing with him through depersonalized mechanical laws. He is vividly aware that what has happened to him is directly orchestrated by God himself. But he also knows that God did not bring this on him because of an act of judgment or of discipline or of some specific thing that he had done. Job agonizes. He cannot understand why God is now acting out of character, completely out of character with what he always understood. Job's communication is heartfelt, and it is deeply personal. Uh, we must, he must somehow recover the friendship with God. He's not talking about some kind of theological calculus on, uh, of his friends. He is agonizing and he's struggling with God. We look at verse 7. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. And then he says in verse 8, He, and he's talking about God, He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. He has set darkness upon my path. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side. I am gone and my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me. His troops come on together. They cast their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. And just think about this. He's given this image, this picture of a siege work. Now you usually think of a siege work is something against a fortified city, you know, that's built up in order to take over that city. His image is a siege work around a piece of flapping canvas. He is like such a weak person. Why would God do this? He doesn't understand. But to Job, God is against him, and it's very painful. The point here is that Job is engaged. Job is not withdrawing from God. He is not disengaging his emotions. He is not stuffing it. He wears his heart on his sleeve. He is fighting. Uh, some time ago, I heard of a, <clears throat> a, an event that took place. It was in a church, and apparently uh, a, an, el a sesh an elders had uh, wanted the resignation of the pastor, and, and along with him, the, the associate pastor, and it was a congregational meeting, and and, the, and when it opened up, the associate pastor walks up and hands his resignation in. And then a member of the church stands up and says, uh, I think that uh, <clears throat> we should take a vote and, and, uh, and call and see if we want to keep this pastor. And the pastor stood up and he said, I've decided to come to this meeting not to resign, but to fight. To fight to continue to be your pastor, and apparently a vote was taken, and two-thirds of the congregation uh, decided to keep the pastor. But God does not want us to resign. Uh, he does not want us to withdraw when we are facing trouble or agony in life. He wants us to 
to engage and to fight. He wants us to stay in the struggle. In the midst of intense pains and heartaches, uh, it is our great tendency to pull away from God. We're confused. We feel abandoned. We feel wronged by him. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's a chronic condition of failing health. Maybe it's relentless depression and loneliness. A surprise assault. We don't understand what God is doing, and we pull away. And sometimes we tend to seek comfort in the wrong places, in empty substitutes. God doesn't help me. Well, maybe this bottle will. God won't help me, but maybe these drugs will. God won't satisfy me, but maybe pornography will. God won't help me, but maybe gambling will. But we must fight. We must wrestle. Like Jacob wrestled with God at night in order to get the blessing. And so Job shows us not only how to fight the fight of faith in the pursuit of God, but also how to fight the fight of faith in his longing for justice. Uh, we find in verse 23 and 24, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. <clears throat> oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. And what we find here is that Job is expressing a yearning for vindication. He, and in one sense, he wants his day in court. He wants to be able to talk to God and find out what's happening and what, what's gone on. But what Job is really referring to is that he wants to make meaning out of his suffering. He wants to be able to understand uh, that what has happened to him isn't just, he's not just alone and he's not, it's not just a meaningless life. Uh, Paul, uh, Job is expressing the reality that life is meaningful and that he wants to understand. In the face of our hardship and suffering that people go through, uh, sometimes it absolutely feels it's futile, that life is meaningless, and it's not worth, uh, it's not worth living. Uh, here's, some here's some quotes. Uh, Quentin Crisp was an uh, English writer. You fall out of your mother's womb, you crawl across open country under fire, and you drop into your grave. Or here's one, an author, and life is a whim of several billion cells to be you for a while. Or this last one, we are born wet, naked, and hungry, and then things get worse. <laughs> and, and the reality is, is that many people uh, struggle with the purpose and meaning of life, and particularly when there's deep losses, uh, the sense of the of the purpose of our lives comes into question. The sense of what, where is God? What is the purpose? And uh, actually, this this morning in a Sun paper, it mentioned that suicide rates in our nation are up 25% in the last 17 years. Uh, in this past week, as two famous people, uh, Kate Spade, who was a fashion designer, and the TV chef, uh, Anthony Baldwin, uh, took their lives this week. And so these aren't like um, remote issues. These are very present in our culture. But Job expresses a longing. He expresses this intense desire. He has a framework that life is meaningful, that there is a vindication of what is going on in his life, and he expresses that yearning. Uh, he mentions that he knows that he is not alone, that God is 
aware that God is involved, even though God has been silent in this. Uh, he says in chapter 7, O watcher of men, why have you made me your target? Uh, he mentions in verse 17, What is man that you have made so much of him, and you give him so much attention that you examine him every morning and test him every moment? Will you never look away from me or let me alone even for an instant? Job is recognizing that God is present, that he is attentive, but he just doesn't understand what he's doing. It's important for us to see the value of life. It's important for us to see that people do matter, that people matter to God. They are image bearers. And Jesus says to his disciples in Luke 12, as he talks about uh, the persecution that they were, will face, he says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid you are worth more than many sparrows. Jesus is, is reinforcing to his disciples that God knows the number of hairs on your head, which I'm having thinner hair, so it's nice to know that he, he acknowledges every single hair on your head that might fall, every sparrow that falls. He is an attentive, aware God. Uh, we find in Revelation, <clears throat> these verses in chapter 14, then I heard a voice from heaven say, right blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. And the word labor here, they will rest from their troubles. They will rest from their griefs and their losses and their sorrows and their toils and their beatings. They will rest for their deeds. And he's talking about their good works. Their good works will follow them. They will precede them. They will, you know, God, it says, he, Jesus said, any cup of water that you give in my name will never be forgotten. You will never lose your reward. Would all these deeds of faith, those prayers that you make, the scriptures tell us that he stores them up like incense. Uh, the tears that you cry in his name, uh, it says he stores them up in a bottle in Psalm 57. God sees everything. He is super attentive to what you are doing in his name. And he stores them up. They're very precious to him. It's, uh, I tend to create clutter in my life. I store a lot of stuff. But one of the things that I, I have a hard time throwing away are like cards that my kids have given me for birthdays or Father's Day or uh, letters that my wife has given me. I mean, I still have all this stuff that from our engagement period. I have all this stuff for the years. And why can't I just like get rid of stuff? Uh, there's something very significant, I think, in our lives, in our hearts, that we yearn to want to know that we're loved and that we're significant and that we are valued by those that love us. Uh, I've had a lot of letters from people in the congregation over the years. Uh, I haven't thrown anything out. I have their emails. Why is that? Well, because we have a desire to want to sense that our lives make a difference, uh, that they're acknowledged. And you know what? 
God affirms that in the scriptures. That what you do, the things that nobody sees, these little prayers or the little acts of kindness, uh, calling somebody up who needs encouragement, uh, serving in so many capacities in life, all those things are not forgotten. Things might fail of that you do. Uh, I've had a, some brothers whose their, their church plant failed this past year. Uh, it was a multiracial urban church plant. It was very hard. But this past year, because of a number of forces, it folded. And it'd be very easy to feel like all of this work, all of this energy, it, it doesn't matter. And I told them, I said, don't you think that way? God has stored up every act of faithfulness that you have engaged in, every prayer, every sermon, every work of, of, of redemptive engagement, God has remembered, and it's not going to be lost. So we find that Job <clears throat> reminds us of the meaning of life, but finally we see that Job shows us the fight of faith in the confession of hope, in the profession of faith. Uh, you know, Job was faced... Uh, has faced his state of despair that was caused by the reproach of his friends, by the devastation of his sense that God had left him, and his sense of utter forsakenness by his brothers and relatives and servants and wife. And he says in verse 19, all my intimate friends detest me. All my intimate friends detest me. He was really utterly alone. He appeals for pity, to only find relentless ridicule. Uh, but it is out of that deep valley of agony that Job leap, leaps to some grand heights of revelation in verse 25 through 27. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Somehow in the midst of an utter rejection, the relentless ridicule of his, of his friends, uh, feeling apart from God, he comes to this brilliant light of revelation of the an amazing grace of God. Where did he get this explosion of God's goodness? He got it from wrestling with God. He got it from pursuing God in his struggle. You see, everybody and everybody had failed job, Job, but he knew that he was not alone. His friends had driven him into the very hands of God, which is the best place to be. Job longed to be vindicated. He longed for someone to be his redeemer, to take up his cause, but his family, his friends, his neighbors wouldn't do it. And he re realized that only God, only God could take up his cause. You see, because Job knew who God was. He knew that even though for some reason God was presently acting against him, God would ultimately be his witness and his advocate because nobody else can do that for him. Uh, John Sanderson, a professor of mine, uh, mentioned this about Job. He said, step by step, Job was seeing little bits and little pieces of something. His faith told him it had to be true. 
He had no voice from heaven, no special revelation here. The appearance of God didn't come until chapter 38, but even then, it wouldn't bring this stuff out. But this is a man who had committed himself to God, and in his aloneness, he examined his own resources that have been given to him by God, and he is coming up with some pretty mighty, terrific theology. <laughs> the Old Testament word that's used here is the word redeemer. Redeemer. Goel is the word, uh, and Goel is translated as vindicator or redeemer. The Goel was the noble relative of a person or family who was hit hard uh, by hard times and this Goel took up the duty of taking up the cause of the hurting person, the, to be a protector, a preserver, a savior in a sense. And that's what Boaz did for impoverished Ruth. He stepped up and became the kinsman redeemer, the family redeemer. Job was looking for someone to step in and take up his cause to vindicate him. He came to the conclusion that God would ultimately step in and be his kinsman redeemer. And you can't get a better redeemer than that. Uh, years ago, we had some leaders uh, for our, the summer camp that we were doing. It was In the past, the faith summer camp was called SYM, Summer Youth Ministry. And uh, uh, there was uh, this uh, poster that was made. It was sent out to churches to help support the camp. And uh, over the top, it says, imagine a camp for kids where Christ is the head counselor. That was a great idea. Uh, imagine a camp. Wouldn't you want to put your kids in that camp? I would. Having Jesus as your head counselor, uh, that is the kind of camp that we seek to encourage at faith. And, and Summer at Faith and the Bible camp and the plant arts, these are camps that we want Christ to permeate. God is the best counselor. God is the best redeemer. And Job sees God as his only true friend, his only kinsman who would ultimately redeem Job from the dust of death by faith. There's no one else. Uh, you know, and while Job expected to die, and Job knew that his flesh would be destroyed, and he acknowledges that, yet in some way Job expected that God would restore Job's flesh and that Job would see God with his own eyes. Job knew that somehow God would come through for him, that God would be his vindicator, that God would raise Job and his body to a new life, and that God would no longer be a stranger. This was the Redeemer that he was looking for, and he says, Oh, my heart yearns within me. And so... This is the kind of God that Job knew existed, that God would eventually come through. There was a, some time ago, I saw a clip on a, a boxing match, and uh, this one boxer was getting beat to a pulp by another boxer. And, but soon, a woman enters, in, crosses, climbs over the ropes with, and takes her shoe and starts to beat the other boxer who is dominating, and it happened to be her son that was getting beat. Now, where does a mother get such a passion to act like that? Well, I can tell you that passion comes from the loving heart of a mother or a father. But where does that come from? You have a heavenly father 
who has the heart of a mother who goes fiercely to protect and celebrate and encourage uh, the, their own chi his child. And so we find this picture of God as the Redeemer. We find this picture of God who comes to save. Uh, Job knew this, and he echoes it in Job 16, 19. He says, Even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend as my eyes pour out tears to God on behalf of a man. He pleads with God as a man pleads for his friend. Job knew, they, why he couldn't understand it, that God was such a friend to him, that he would plead his cause. You see, Job struggled with God in the face of the rejection and the agony that he was going through. Job, let, or God led him to some brilliant, he led him to amazing truths about his grace, truths that are often cloaked in our days of personal satisfaction and fulfillment. But in the midst of our brokenness, he reveals the beauty of his presence and grace. And so we need to let the misery and the agony and the pain and the suffering that we go through in our lives to work at letting us know God more, to letting us to see the nature of who God is and to place our lives within that context. Some time ago, I received a wonderful note of encouragement from a member of our church uh, who was a professor at uh, Johns Hopkins, and uh, she was commenting on Job. She says, I like it very much when Job said, the thing which I greatly feared has come upon me, and that which I dreaded has happened to me, which is something that we wouldn't want. <laughs> but she says, God gives us what lies deeply in our hearts. Is there a way to be without fear? Without the monster shaking in the dark corner of our heart, maybe that is why we have the book of Job, so that we can bring the monster out of the shadow and shed some light onto it. And when we stay with Job, go through the bumpy journey with him, feel his pain, maybe then we will see the monster in clarity. Maybe the monster has something to teach us, and when we have learned that, maybe we will no longer be afraid. Maybe it is only love, divine love. Well, God wants us to know him, and he wants us to know his divine love. God wants us to let our agony work out the theology in our lives of God's amazing presence and grace. God yearns for us to have compassion for us, and we must yearn for him. I don't know where you are in your present journey. Uh, I don't know what particular pain or suffering or losses that you might be going through or that you might go through, but I encourage you to let those losses and let that intensity drive you to know this God who will not abandon you, who will be there for you, and regardless of what is happening in your life and how far it seems like he's away, that he is very present and he cares to the depths that are beyond your comprehension. Uh, there was this uh, poet, Jane Kenyon, uh, she wrote this few lines looking at stars. She says, the God of curved space, the dry God, is not going to help us, but the son whose blood spattered the hem of his mother's robe. What a powerful 
struggle. She's revealing that sense is that God's not going to help us. But the contradiction is, well, let's look at what happened at the cross. And the picture is Mary, the mother of Jesus, at the feet of Jesus, her son, on the cross, the blood dripping down, spattering her robe, staining her robe. What was that about? It was about God so loved you. God so loved me. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If we ever wonder about the commitment and the passion and the focus of God for us, all we have to look at is the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you give us a Job in the midst of uh, just chronic agony and suffering, uh, the betrayal of his friends, the loss of of the affection of his family, uh, Lord, in the, the sense that you had abandoned him. But Lord, in the midst of that dark valley, you showed Job a brilliant light that you would be his redeemer, that Lord, you would be our redeemer in the midst of our losses. And so God, I pray for uh, this body and for those that are listening that who may be in their own throes of agony. God, I pray that you would strengthen, that you would let their... The lo- your love be experienced in their lives like never before. And that, God, you would sustain us. Help us to be comforters to one another in our own trials. That, God, you would be honored and magnified in our midst. And we pray this in Jesus' name.